Welcome to Spectrum, the science and technology show on KALX Berkeley, a bi-weekly 30-minute program bringing you interviews featuring Bay Area scientists and technologists, as well as a calendar of local events and news. Hi, my name is Brad Swift, and I'm the host of today's show. Today's interview is with Professor Lotvi Zada. He is Professor Emeritus in the Electrical Engineering and Computer Science Department of the College of Engineering at UC Berkeley. Professor Zada was trained as an electrical engineer at the University of Tehran, where he received a bachelor's degree, at MIT, where he received a master's, and Columbia University, where he received a Ph.D. From 1950 to 1959, Zada was a member of the Department of Electrical Engineering at Columbia University. He joined the Department of Electrical Engineering at UC Berkeley in 1959 and served as its chair from 1963 to 1968. During his tenure as chair, he played a key role in changing the name of the department from Electrical Engineering to Electrical Engineering Computer Science, or EECS. In June 1965, Professor Zada published a paper titled Fuzzy Sets in the journal Information and Control. This paper formalized his seminal fuzzy set theory. In the years since, fuzzy set theory and fuzzy logic has been hailed as a brilliant addition to set theory. The word fuzzy is used to characterize the imprecision and uncertainty of real-world phenomena that the theory embraces. Essentially, a fuzzy set is a set whose members have degrees of membership within the range 0 and 1. Fuzzy set theory permits the gradual assessment of the membership of elements in a set. The membership is described by a value in the interval 0 to 1. Fuzzy logic is based on fuzzy set theory, where sets are approximate rather than fixed and exact. Fuzzy logic embraces the concept of partial truth, where the truth value may range between completely true, 1, and completely false, 0. This interview is pre-recorded and edited. Professor Zada, thank you very much for joining us on Spectrum. It's my pleasure. What do you think it was about being here at Berkeley that got you thinking about fuzzy logic and, and the yes. work that you then published. Right. Well, you see, what happened is that I have always been a strong believer in mathematics. I always believed that mathematics can solve all problems. It's simply a matter of learning more. If you cannot solve the problem with what you know, learn more. And then you go. So that was my feeling. But then I began to feel... Uh, there is a disconnect between the precision of mathematics and the imprecision of the real world. So uh, I began to feel that way in 1961, 62, 63, during sort of that period, and my feeling that there is a problem grew. In 1964, when I was visiting New York, this idea occurred to me. The thing to do is to introduce the concept of a fuzzy set, a class which does not have sharp boundaries. So instead of talking about something being in a class or not being in a class, you're talking about the degree to which you are a member of a class, which seems to be a very natural sort of a thing. So what is surprising is this very simple natural idea was not introduced in mathematics, you see. To some degree, it is amazing. There is multivalued logic. In multivalued logic, truth 
is a matter of degree. In fuzzy logic, everything is a matter of degree. Fuzzy logic follows fuzzy set theory. Everything is a matter of degree. So the agenda of fuzzy logic is completely different from the agenda of multivariate logic. So do you consider yourself a creative thinker? Uh, I, I think so, yes. I think this is... Uh, my strength is coming up with original ideas. That's my strength. There are people who are smarter than I am, but they are not creative. In other words, if we took exams, probably they do better than I. But somehow they lack this particular capability. So what is somewhat unusual, and I must pat myself on the back, is that people at my age, you know, I turn 90, uh, continue to do something. I was so lucky to be in a certain kind of environment that allowed me to do that. I wrote my first paper, which is 1965. At that time, I was chair of the department, and I had, I was on editorial boards, I had recognition. I submitted a paper publication. The reviews were lukewarm. If I were not a member of the editorial board of that journal, it would have been turned down. But as a matter of courtesy, they published it. Now that paper, my 1965 paper, is the highest cited paper in that journal. 26,000 citations. The next highest cited paper is 2,000. Ten times more. Uh, If a paper has 200, 300 citations, that's considered to be respectable. In Europe, I think to be promoted to a full professorship, you need at least 50 citations. Uh, Many people don't realize that. Yesterday I gave a lecture in which there was a little bit of discussion of fuzzy logic. And the number of papers with fuzzy in title. I asked somebody who knows nothing about fuzzy logic, I said, in your perception, how many papers in the literature have fuzzy in title? His answer was 14. And he is a professor. He was a lecturer, not a student. I asked somebody else, 50. Okay, what is the correct number? 245,000. That's a lot. 245,000 papers with fuzzy entitled. Uh, that's not something that's, that's black and white. Either it's entitled or it's not entitled. See? How many patents? 33,000 patents related to fuzzy. Here, it's a little bit of a question. Is it related, unrelated, to what degree? This is the picture. So it shows, you know, the degree to which competent people can uh, misunderstand something. So you send a paper to reviewers, presumably who know a lot, and then they say this is a piece of nonsense, garbage, whatever, whatever, whatever. Is this the conservative nature of the math world and people in mathematics, that they're very conservative, they don't want to embrace a new idea like fuzzy logic, fuzzy New sense? ideas have difficult time, unless they're very much in the spirit of what's being done. You see? If it's very much in the spirit of what's being done, no problems. So if you have four-color problem or Fermat's theorem and you prove it, no problem. 
But if you come up with some new something, 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 you may have a problem. So the same thing applies to music and many other things. Music in particular, you know. If you compose something that is in the spirit of what's popular, great. But if you compose something that is completely different, people will throw tomatoes at you, which was what happened in music, you know, many composers, Stravinsky, people like that, you know. Yeah. Very eternal music, this music, that music. Right. Music is a good example of the situation in which, uh, which originality of a, in a certain sense gets you in trouble. You are listening to KALX Berkeley. We are talking with Professor Lakvi Zada, the creator of fuzzy set theory and fuzzy logic. Fuzzy Logic found its niche in industrial controllers. It was jump-started by Asilian and Mamdani in 1974 with their fuzzy linguistic algorithm to control a steam engine. The fuzzification of industrial controllers took off. Cement kilns in Denmark, subway trains in Sendai City, Japan, elevators, consumer products like camcorders, washing machines, vacuum cleaners, and cars. Professor Zada attributes the success of fuzzy algorithms to two concepts he introduced, linguistic variables and fuzzy if-then rules. The hierarchy of a linguistic variable can be described as follows. Age can be a linguistic variable. Age is made up of, for example, three fuzzy sets named very young, young, and old. The membership function of each of these sets is mapped onto a numerical scale of values, in this case, 0 to 100 years old. Each data element can be, if then, tested for its degree of set membership. The higher the degree associated with an element in a given set, the more reliable the membership. The importance of this concept is how widely linguistic variables can be applied to problem solving. If you can describe what it is you want to know or how you want a system to behave, you can build a linguistic algorithm and compute. But uh, let me uh, explain why there were so many applications. So I wrote my first paper in 1965. In 1973, I wrote a paper in which I introduced the concept of a linguistic variable. A linguistic variable, and that was a key concept, is a variable whose values are worse. Humans use it all the time. Talk about age, you can use numbers, one, two, three, four, five, but you can use words, young, not young, very young, more or less young, old, not very old, middle age. People use words instead of numbers. That's the point. So... I called a variable like that, linguistic variable, a variable whose values are words. But those words are labels of fuzzy sets. So when you say tall, it is a fuzzy set. A fuzzy set is associated with membership function. That means that given a particular height, you could tell to what degree is the person who is that tall is a member of the class of Tomer. This is called membership function. So linguistic variable is not just something that takes those values. 
Humans do that, but humans do not associate fuzzy sets with the value. That's a big difference. But once you associate fuzzy sets, you can compute with those fuzzy sets. And that turned out to be a key idea. Because they, you could program a natural language. So in that paper, 1973 paper, I introduced two basic concepts. One was the concept of linguistic variable, and the other one the concept of fuzzy if then rule. Today, 95% of all applications of fuzzy logic use those two concepts. And you begin to see why it's easy to use natural language in many cases. If I asked you, how do you park your car? You could explain it as a natural language. But if I asked you to do it using numbers, you couldn't do it. I said, if you are within so many feet and your angle is so much, then turn the wheel by so many degrees, nobody can do that. But people can use words. So you take words and associate those labels with them, and then you execute. So people found that they can solve many problems. A good example is balancing the inverted pendulum, a stick. So a 10-year-old can write the rules. If this angle is large and it's increasing, then give it a big push. So traditionally, to solve that problem, people use control theory. They write differential equations, they do this. Not need, not necessary, a 10-year-old can solve the problem. <laughs> when you were developing your fuzzy set theory, were you collaborating with anybody at all at the university? Not really. I've never been much of a collaborator. That's the way I function. So I've always been like that. I'm not saying that this is a good thing. I'm not pointing to myself as a role model in that respect. I think the opposite. I think students enjoy working closely with a supervisor, but somehow I always felt more comfortable doing things on my own. Do you think your education in education some, some helped manner helped you, you become education more creative? helped in one major way. I went through systems in which uh, the emphasis was on not on money, but on, on education, on being a good student, a good relationship with your professors. It was a very, very wholesome environment. I consider myself to be lucky in that I went through that kind of an environment, friendly, friendly. And later at MIT and also at Columbia, I was also in an environment that does not exist today, unfortunately. Today we have money-centric environment. Everything revolves around money. That was not the case when I was a student. At MIT, when I was a student, professors didn't know what is the meaning of a grant, uh, Washington proposal. They didn't know what it meant. Today, unless you bring some money, They treat you like a piece of dirt. I find it very disconcerting 
that young people today are brought up in that environment. They are told, look, if you don't manage to get money, we will not advance you to tell you. So they have to kill themselves to try to get money. But even what is even worse is that the people who tell these young people, unless you get money, we, we won't advance you. They know that those young people will not succeed. But they will be able then fire them at some point and replace them with another cheap and naive young person. You see? Right. Do you see the same sort of tension between publishing and teaching historically in education? Well, this has always been the case, you know, publish or perish. But this is not money centricity. This is some other centricity. Well, it sort of goes to the core values of the institution. Is That's it more right. important to teach or is right. it more important to publish? Well, it depends. It depends, of course. Institutions vary. I would put Berkeley right at the very top in terms of uh, enlightened approach to these issues. If I lost all of my money, as I said, I would not be exiled to a small thing. I would not be treated like a piece of dirt. I would be some of the places. Uh, and if I did not publish anything, but I did some good work, I would still be treated with respect. I may not be promoted that rapidly, but in other places, I must tell you that uh, unfortunately these changes have not been for the better. Uh, I am very, very anti-money centricity. I see the evil effects of it all over the place and also in other countries. You are listening to KALX Berkeley. We are talking with Professor Latvi Zada, the creator of fuzzy set theory and fuzzy logic. Latvi Zada feels that computing with words can have an impact in fields like biology, medicine, and the humanities, where conventional mathematical and analytical methods are ill-suited. By combining fuzzy logic with other techniques like neural networks, evolutionary computing, machine learning, and probabilistic reasoning, a new kind of computing can be realized. This week, it was announced that Professor Zada was inducted into the Artificial Intelligence Hall of Fame, launched by the IEEE Intelligent Systems Magazine. You enjoy the teaching? Yes, very much so. I've always enjoyed teaching. Now, I must tell you that I consider myself to be very lucky in that what I like to do and what I had to do were almost always coincident. Now, some parts of teaching, uh, I cannot say that I like that much. For example, grading homeworks, grading exams. You don't like, but that's the price that you have to pay. But if somebody asked me, would you like to do something else? I said, not one microsecond. This is wonderful life. Is there a part of mathematics that you find most intriguing other than what you've yeah. focused on that sort of inspired you? Yes, but let me tell you about something that's sure. uh, recent. And I think it is really important. I think it's really important. Uh, it has to do with the capability of mathematics to solve computational problems which are stated in a natural language. So usually when you find a problem in some books on this and that, you have a bunch of numbers there. 
given this and this and this, what is something else? Okay. That's typical problem. But suppose that you have a problem in which instead of numbers, you have words. Can mathematics solve problems of this kind? That's the question. My answer to that, my contention is, no. Traditional mathematics cannot solve. And I give simple problems, and I give it to people who have PhDs in mathematics, who have written books on mathematics, who have written books on this and that. They cannot solve it. Let me give you a very simple example. Probably John is tall. What is the probability that John is short? Not one person has been able to come up with a mathematical solution. People use common sense, they say something. But they cannot come up with a mathematical solution. So, what I have done, and what I call computing with words, opens that door. You add it to mathematics, traditional mathematics, and that mathematics plus computing with words has the capability to solve problems which are state and national. I think that this is an important capability. And what is uh, particularly striking to me is that the only system today, computational system, or system computation, that has that capability is fuzzy logic-based computing with words. So here we have mathematics cannot solve problems which are state and natural language. And yet it's quite obvious there are many, in the real world, real life, there are many problems like that. But people usually solve them using sort of common sense, you see. But they cannot be solved mathematically. So I feel that uh, this is not widely recognized as yet. But I'm beginning to talk about it, I'm beginning to write about it, well, Professor Zada, thank you very much for spending this time with us talking about your thank work. Thank you for giving me an opportunity to vent my views. As you can see, I express myself uh, perhaps somewhat strongly. And if I offend somebody, please accept my apology. But let me tell you something about Brahms. Brahms had a sharp tongue. He was leaving a party. And he, at the, uh, as he was thinking, the party said, if there is anybody in here whom I have not offended, please accept my apology. <laughs> <laughs> That's Brahms. <laughs> of Spectrum is to mention a few of the science and technology events happening locally over the next few weeks. Here's Rick Karneski. Today, August 26, from 2 p.m. to 3 p.m., Professor Ely Labladinovich of the EECS Department and the Director of the Center for Energy Efficient Electronic Science will present Searching for the Millivolt Switch. Moore's Law predicts smaller components leading to increased energy efficiency, but while wires can operate at very low voltages, current transistors cannot. Can the transistors be replaced with new low-voltage switches better matched to the fine low-voltage wires? Visit the Hearst Memorial Mining Building, room 390, today at 2 p.m. to find out. The Community Resources for Science, or the CRS, are having a founder celebration Sunday, August 28th, from 4 to 6.30 p.m. at Cliff Barn Company, 1451 66th Street in Emeryville. 
CRS gives practical support for great science teaching to get kids excited about science. Dr. Peter H. Glick is the co-founder and president of the Pacific... about their experience in East Bay classrooms. Tickets are $25 for students and teachers or $40 for the general public. Visit founderscelebration2011.eventbrite.com for tickets. On Thursday, September 8th from 7 to 9 p.m., the Ecology Center at 530 San Pablo Avenue near Dwight in Berkeley is hosting a free lecture. It is entitled From Auto Cities to Eco Cities, Examples from Around the Globe. They'll discuss city design, from around the world that favors walking, cycling, and public transit. The presentation will be followed by an interactive session based on an evolving EcoCity framework under development by the EcoCity Builders and an international advisory committee. Visit ecologycenter.org for more info. The Exploratorium's After Dark is an evening series for 18 and overs that mixes cocktails, conversation, and playful, innovative science and art events. It happens the first Thursday of the month from 6 to 10 p.m. After Dark is included in the general admission price, which is $15 for adults. The theme for September 1st's After Dark is music and creativity. Explore unique musical instruments made by local artist Soon Kim and hear Indian classical music performed by Dr. Parag Chorgia, who researches connections between music and creativity as the head of the music intelligence group at the Georgia Tech Center for Music Technology. He'll also share his work on the creation of new technologies for musical self-expression, and the neural basis for musical emotion and the cognitive underpinnings of musical experience. Visit exploratorium.edu for more info. Now, two news stories. David Lipkind, Chris Todd Hittinger, and other researchers write in the August 22nd issue of the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences that they have discovered a strain of yeast in Patagonia that they believe is one of the parents of the modern-day lager yeast, Saccharomyces pastorianus. Lagers are brewed at 39 to 48 degrees Fahrenheit. The style is believed to have originated in Germany in the 15th century because low winter temperatures prevent contamination. However, most varieties of the common ale yeast, Saccharomyces cerevisiae, are active at higher temperatures, 59 to 77 degrees Fahrenheit. Lager yeasts are a domesticated hybrid of the ale yeast with a cold-resistant species. The researchers note that the draft genome sequence of the newly discovered yeast, Saccharomyces eubionis, is 99.5% identical to the non-ale yeast portion of the lager yeast genome. The journal Science reports that white researchers are nearly twice as likely as blacks to win grants from the National Institutes of Health, or the NIH. NIH Director Frances Collins notes that she is deeply dismayed and has said that this is simply unacceptable that there are differences in success that can't be explained. Between 2000 and 2006, 29% of white applicants received funding, but only 16% of black researchers did. Hispanic and Asian scientists had approximately the same success ratio as white researchers, particularly after correcting for nationality and past research record. While reviewers do not have direct information on the race and ethnicity of applicants, it can be inferred from names and biographies. The bias seems to arise early in the review process, and the NIH is striving to find measures that will eliminate it by drawing on more minority reviewers and possibly helping applicants with their grant writing. Editing assistance from Judith White Marcellini. Production assistance from Rick Karneski. The music heard during the show is from a Lostana David album entitled Folk and Acoustic. 
you for listening to Spectrum. If you have comments about the show, please send them to us via email. Our email address is spectrum.kalx at yahoo.com. Join us in two weeks at this same time.